You are listening to the Humane Podcast. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and you are listening to Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to the show. Welcome back to the Humane Podcast. Today, I'm bringing a special guest from the West Coast. Today's guest is Jerry Ting, and he is the founder and CEO of Evasort, which is an AI-powered contract analytics platform. I first got to know Jerry through one of our mutual colleagues, Pat Yang, with Amity Ventures, who happens to be one of their lead investors as their startup has been scaling up. It's a very exciting space. I know legal tech and what is that whole industry is evolving very quickly. So love to learn more about it today. And Jerry, thanks so much for being with us. David, it's my pleasure. Yeah. So starting off with legal tech, you know, I'm a New Yorker. And when we think of law firms and legal in New York, everyone thinks of the big firms, the super firms, the super lawyers, but the legal space is evolving and changing very quickly. So tell us about yourself, legal tech, and why that's the venture pathway that you're exploring and growing with Evisort. Yeah, I love the uh, the New York background because I actually had spent some time in a law firm in New York before starting Evisort. I'm a lawyer by background, originally from the Bay Area, so grew up uh, loving technology, being a fan of, and I remember back in high school, we would get together and watch Apple Keynotes uh, with Steve Jobs, right? And and those were things that my friends and I did growing up. And so we're always fans of technology, but I always had a passion for law. And so went to Harvard for law school and then worked also in New York. And so I think law is one of those things where it's a super fascinating industry in the sense that it's one of the last ones to typically adopt technology. And so one of the things that surprised me as a millennial is when I got to law practice, the type of tools that we were using, the type of work that people were doing, a lot of uh, legacy tools, you know, tools that are focused on solving something very specific. Like one, one example is billing. As you might know, lawyers bill every six minutes. So don't talk too long on the phone, but you know, we actually have billing software that tracks how long, how many six minute intervals we're talking. And so that was the type of tools that we were using, but nothing with um, automation, artificial intelligence, business intelligence. And so if you, if you flip to your inside life, you know, when you're at home, you know, we use Dropbox, we use Google Drive, we, we're collaborating on Apple Cloud, but then you go into the law firm environment or the legal environment, And then we step back 10 to 15 years in technology. And so the question then is why? Why is it that right there in the middle of Manhattan, charging people, clients, six to $800 an hour as a young associate, we're using technology that really has been available for the last 10 to 15 years. And so legal tech is one of those amorphous terms that emerged recently, but it's a new wave of technology that addresses the question of how do we make lawyers more efficient? You know, when I think of the legal industry, it's a lot of what you're saying, Jerry, that uh, one of my favorite shows from a few years ago is The Good Wife, right? And that's, you know, classic story of law firms, you know, Alicia Florrick, and most of it's all about the law battles and the drama that we know on TV shows. But occasionally, even the episodes would dive into tech and you would 
you would almost see it as a parody and, and a comedy of how minimal the technology is and when they ran into issues. And, you know, as a consumer, you would think, oh, that's just what we'll see on TV. But perhaps that's actually what's going on at law firms. And because of that 10 to 15 year lag in technology, now is a ripe opportunity for disruption in the legal space. Absolutely. When I learned about law practice as I was apprenticing to become a lawyer, the stories I heard from lawyers who were just ahead of me a few years, it shocked me. So I'll share two examples. One is a deal document review, which is if you're going through a merger acquisition, a company's buying another company, you know, as recent as 10 years ago, you would get banker boxes, thousands and thousands of pages, rent out a conference room in a hotel and bring in an army of associates and manually go through it one by one with sticky notes. This was happening even during, you know, 2008, 2009, during the financial recession. It's very recent, right? Taking that and just moving that to the cloud has created multiple billion dollar businesses, just taking the filing cabinet and creating deal rooms. Another example is uh, gathering signatures. This still happens today, but it's the job of a young associate to go and actually gather signature pages, print them out, go to customers and clients, get the contract signed, and then basically put them all together in a PDF. And they'll charge customers and clients hundreds of hours to basically do those two processes. E-signature has been around for 10 years or 15 years, right? So when, when I saw what was actually happening in law, I realized, wow, there's a really big market opportunity here to both modernize and also look forward, you know, bring in automation and artificial intelligence to really help an industry that provides a lot of value but hasn't adopted technology in the way that I'll say, you know, financial you know, counterparts have. So looking at the market now, and we're in 2020, what part of the market did you decide was where Eversort and your team could best help advance legal tech to modern day? Yeah, so the thing about lawyers is that there are two types of lawyers. And so most legal tech companies could be split between these two types. There are those who litigate, who actually are suing uh, and trying to resolve a matter. And then there's corporate lawyers. So my background is I, I am a corporate lawyer. I'm, I'm not a, a litigator. Although I have litigators who now work for me at Eversol uh, who've crossed the bridge. And it's so interesting, you know, the rise of e-discovery. You know, several companies there have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, e-discovery is something that that has been invested a lot into predictive analytics over the last 10 to 15 years. And so what you see is this very interesting split inside of law firms where a partner that does litigation knows how to do predictive analytics, predictive coding, and has relationships with vendors. You go down one floor on the same New York high rise to a corporate partner and they're using Excel to track deal flow. It's even in the same law firm just by going from litigation to corporate, there's a big drop-off in tech adoption. And so for Eversor, knowing that, we focus on the corporate side because we also realize that the function of legal tech goes beyond just the legal function. You know, lawyers are supporting uh, financial bankers, they're supporting procurement clients, they're supporting sales. And for us, we focus actually on working more in-house than we do with law firms because that's where the economic model aligns better. If you think about law firms, and this is admittedly changing, but historically law firms bill on an hourly basis. And so if you bring in tools that save 80% of time, 
you know, that might be not necessarily all good for a law firm. For an in-house counsel, for a lawyer at Microsoft, for a lawyer at, you know, in, name any big firm, you know, they're driven by traditional business KPIs. So being more efficient, being able to help close deals quicker, removing roadblocks for sales and procurement, these are good things for in-house counsel. And so we focus on in-house corporate counsel. And so, as you mentioned, you know, it's very different from e-discovery. We have the big companies that have raised a lot of capital like Epic and Disco and others. But there's this whole in-house counsel arena that everyone knows you need counsel, whether you're a startup, whether you're a Fortune 500, everyone has in-house counsel. But as you mentioned, it's a lot of money, it's a lot of time, and there has to be a way to make it more efficient. Now, before we dive deeper into what you're doing right now, you know, of course, in the legal tech space, anyone who's a lawyer or who's in the space has noticed in the news that, you know, one of the major ventures in this space has had a lot of shifts and changes lately. So from what you're seeing in the legal tech arena with companies like Atrium, you know, founded by the former founder of Twitch, you know, they've run into some troubles lately with hiring and pivoting. And uh, what do you think of the arena? It sounds like there's a lot of change happening right now in legal tech. Yes, I, I think Atrium is a great company. And I know some of the operators at Atrium. I think whenever you go through the amount of change that we're seeing the legal industry go through, it's not easy. It's, it's, I think it's actually easier to change technology than it is to change people's minds. And what Atrium uh, has done well, I think, is actually become uh, a law firm of sorts themselves and provide end services to their clients, but in an alternative model. And so whenever you do that, you know, the incumbents are going to be a little surprised, uh, a little uh, curious. And so for Atrium, I think they are pushing the envelope on what it means to provide legal services. And so, you know, some hiccups I think are expected, but they're focused on technology, the background of the founders, the overall mission of, hey, we think we can provide legal services, whether it's tech-enabled or with alternative billing models. You know, I think those are truisms. I think Atrium is going to figure it out, and I hope that they do, because I do think that there is a large opportunity for disruption in the law firm space. I hope to see it happen in my lifetime. And I think you're right. There will be definitely changes in your lifetime. You know, uh, yourself, I know that your uh, venture recently announced the $15 million Series A funded by M12 and Vertex. So you're going through a lot of growth. You're seeing some product adoption, some traction for sure. What are some of the good use cases that you can disclose where you're seeing uh, Eversort put to work today? Yeah, so M12 is Microsoft's venture arm. And so Microsoft is an investor in Eversort. And I think part of why that's exciting to me is almost 80% of our customers use SharePoint or Microsoft Teams to store contracts in one way or another. And so if you think about it, SharePoint is a really good repository, but it's sometimes difficult for clients to understand, hey, I want to go across 10,000 contracts, understand what are the key legal terms when do they expire? When do my vendor contracts expire? You know, how much money do I owe them? Am I actually paying them and billing them correctly? And so for us, one of the main use cases is taking data that already exists in the cloud and activating it using machine learning and AI. And so the key use cases are, I'll, I'll bring down to three. One is for uh, helping accelerate deals, helping accelerate how quickly a sales team can close contracts because we can provide a layer of automation to review contracts for approval. The other one is vendor management. 
And so being able to see across a billion dollar supply chain, where in North America are my software license agreements? How much am I paying? When do I have to cancel? Which ones automatically renew? Put that all in a calendar format and visualize that. And the third one is, I think, one that encompasses both of the previous, which is bringing data to light. And that's a centralized enterprise repository where regardless of where your contracts are stored, sales contracts could be in Salesforce, employment contracts could be in Workday, vendor contracts could be in SAP Ariba, but one centralized place where management can go and find and run a report and gather insights about their contracts across the entire enterprise. It's amazing to see how you've, uh, in such a short time period, already discovered your product market fit. And working with startups, I think that's one of the biggest challenges, seeing where do customers have their biggest pain points to be solved. And between accelerating deals, vendor management access, and getting insights in the data, it sounds like you have three very robust pathways to growth. And that's where you are now, but uh, I'm sure as the CEO, you have some vision for the direction of Evasort and where that looks like over the next one to two years. Could you paint us a little bit of that picture? Yeah, absolutely. So our AI technology does a couple of things. We can take a scanned contract that we've never seen before, accurately convert it to a Word file, and then pull out over 50 different data points, including who the contract is with, you know, when does it expire, and what are the key legal terms. We can do that all today. Going forward, we have a lot of clients who then have asked us, can we go further? Can we actually read a contract for them using artificial intelligence and tell them, where should I negotiate this contract? You know, where, where is the, from a content analysis perspective, based on benchmark data, how do we optimize this contract? And that's the next level of intelligence that gets me really excited. You know, that's the type of thing that traditionally has been based on human experience. But we have access to over 5 million contracts that we own proprietarily. And so from a record, a truth perspective, from a what's market perspective, and what's fair perspective, you know, Eversor has an opinion. And so going forward, increasingly, we're going to provide more content-specific recommendations for things like sales contracts, you know, is this a pricing term average or can you recognize more pricing based on the deal economics? You know, for vendor contracts, can we drive pricing consolidation and pricing flexibility by aggregating purchasing across the enterprise? Leases, you know, can we actually go across leases for an entire company and recognize, hey, when do you actually have to renew these leases? Because some of these leases can get hairy. And so as our machine learning gets more robust, we're building verticalized use cases that, to be honest, when I started Eversor four years ago, never thought it was possible. But today we're doing some of that already. And so from what you've just shared, two of the biggest areas I think that are necessary for successful AI implementation and deployment are both research and the data. So first, I wanted to dive into research. What is your team doing today to get better AI machine learning? Specifically, it sounds like you, know, you have all these documents and contracts, so there might be things like NLP and OCR and computer vision. Maybe some of this is being used. So what is your team doing around research? All of the above. And so let me walk through the steps we take to build a model. So how Eversor was built was... I was practicing as a volunteer uh, student lawyer. 
out of Harvard Law School, and my client was getting his PhD at the time at MIT. So I was working as his lawyer, and I was using some pretty legacy technology to surface his matter. And so I asked him, I was like, look, is there a way, traditionally this has been done by humans, we look at contracts, we, we, we look for XYZ clauses, we look for XYZ data points, is it possible to use technology to do that? Automatically pull it out and classify it, and then maybe put it into a report so that a human can read it. And that, to this day, is still how we do our, our work. We understand what the customers need. What are the five data points that will really get this customer uh, enabled? And then we go to our research team and we have already models that we built that we'll test with. And most of them are deep learning models. A lot of research being done on natural language processing, on computer vision. And so what we do is we test it on the existing models that we have. And then if the accuracy is not where we need it to be, we then start to tune that model and then add additional features. We retest, we get training data. I have over 20 legal analysts working for me every day, just creating training data. And so we have a large training set that we can lean on. And so at that point, it becomes a matter of your data set, the type of models that you use, and then uh, QA. And so that's a three-step process that we can get from an idea of, hey, I want to pull out expiration dates to here's a model that's over 95% accurate. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You know, I have a hunch and a suspicion in the data science space, um, having uh, been an instructor and working on different projects in data science and AI, I've been coming up with my own thesis on the industry. And I'll be having a publication that's going to be talking about this this year. But I think the workflow typically for any venture starts out with the data aggregation and the data collection. It then moves to some sort of data labeling, data structuring, then moves to some sort of feature enrichment or data expansion, then into that machine learning model algorithms, and then deployment slash QA, ethics, privacy, and whatnot. I think... Of those five pillars, assuming that's the truth that I'm coming from, I think the first three are essential. I actually think 
too many companies are focusing on the final two. Let me get a better algorithm that will optimize. Let me figure out the privacy. But as you just described, you have 20 legal analysts, and it sounds like a majority of their time is not necessarily creating new algorithms, but between creating and gathering data and QAing and modifying these features, that's a lot of the focus. So my question to you from the initial two pillars I shared before that I think it's all about research and data, to hear from your side, why is data, do you think, so important for Eversort? I think data is important for us because without it, our models wouldn't work the way that our clients want it to work. It's easy to get on the whiteboard and, in theory, design an algorithm that should work. And then the first customer you get to that gives you an out-of-sample contract that looks nothing like your training set, that's when everything falls apart. And we learned that with our first couple of clients, to be honest. And so we went back to the drawing board and we said, okay, it's easy to get to 80% accuracy on a whole. And then at that point, every basis point needs to be earned, whether it's, you know, and we found that when you get to about 85% accuracy, you, know, you might have to go to a completely different algorithm. So everything you did before then might have to get thrown out the door. But the thing that holds true across all of the modeling, all the research, is if you have a diversified data set and you find a model that fits the data set accurately, that is your, your best bet. And that's how you control for the surprises where you go into a customer environment and it does something different than what it did in the lab, is you, you should be training on real production-like data. And so that's why we've invested a significant portion of our R&D budget in building out a proprietary data set that now spans hundreds of thousands of labeled data points and the modeling then follows that. But without a large enough data set, you're, you might be building a model for the wrong uh, subset of data. It, it might be an underfitted model. Another thing that I'll say is from a scalability perspective, we're creating training data that customers may not have ordered yet, but we know that as a phase two in a transformation project, they may need. And so we're actually creating training data ahead of our product roadmap so that when the customer orders come, we can activate very quickly instead of waiting for a customer order to come, then trying to get training data, then modeling. Now you're you know, several weeks behind. And so speaking of product roadmap and product releases, there's always opportunity for new features to be added in all software. And you know, I've been learning a lot about product management. Just recently, in fact, I was in New York at a panel at Bloomberg with Cornell Tech, where the CEO of Via, the ride-hailing and dynamic transportation company, was, was giving a talk. And, and they were sharing about features. They're always adding new features, seeing what their customers can do better, and learning from the feedback. So I think all products always are having new releases. Some are incremental improvements. Some are large improvements. So love to hear any new product releases that your team is working on. Yeah, so we just announced a much more robust platform that surrounds our AI capabilities. So when I think about contracting, there's things you do before you sign a contract, and then there's the things you do after you sign a contract. Historically, contract management and AI vendors have focused on the things you do after you sign a contract. We just announced recently a full collaboration platform from generating a contract to negotiating it to getting it approved, all assisted by AI, that's now available to all of our clients. And so we are the first company to go end-to-end -end from the creation of a contract all the way through renewal 
all AI assisted, all on one platform. At the end of 2019, I think that phrase you just used, end to end, started becoming real. You know, Jerry, I saw that at the Strata O'Reilly conference where different companies were saying end-to-end machine learning, end-to-end AI, but we haven't seen end-to-end platforms for different industries yet, like yours in legal tech. So I think it's really fascinating to see what you're building as end-to-end. And perhaps this is a theme we're going to see in many verticals in 2020 is the emergence of end-to-end platforms. I think so. I think there's a big difference between SaaS companies and AI companies. And I think a lot of people confuse the two. AI companies, the comments I made earlier about research, creating training data, having 20 legal analysts, SaaS companies don't do that. That's not their DNA. And so traditionally, SaaS companies are building software that could be deployed in the cloud, and you can sign up with a credit card and you have a platform there. Our idea is, why don't we combine the two? Why don't we combine deep AI analytics that were traditionally meant for large enterprises working with uh, consultants, democratize that AI so that it's easily digestible and verticalized for a business function, and then wrap it in a SaaS platform so that anybody can use it. And so I think AI companies mature. They're going to build more end-to-end SaaS platforms, and I think it's going to be hard for the SaaS platforms to build the AI capabilities. And I think that over time, the two emerge into end-to-end SaaS and AI platforms. That is a big phrase, end-to-end SaaS and AI platforms. And I think you're right because we're seeing everything merge. You know, we traditionally had the data scientist and then we had the software engineer when it came to tech employees at startups. And just in the past few years, now there's the machine learning engineer, there's the AI specialist, there's the data scientist who's expected to know Java. So there's all this you know, hybrids of roles. And I think that means we're going to see hybrids of companies that are adjusting their business models to be software as a service focused while being end-to-end as platforms, which is unique, but also shows a, a maturity of the market. I love all that you've shared. And I wanted to now segue the conversation to a little bit on East Coast versus West Coast. Best Coast, not Best Coast, who knows? As you mentioned earlier in our episode, you've done a lot of work in New York and Boston on the East Coast. And now you're based on the West Coast. And you've also studied there and and your ventures been there on both sides. But what's your take on it? Why are you guys now mostly on the West Coast? I think it's an age-old question. And I apologize to friends on both coasts uh, because I think my answer is going to be imperfect for both. When we started our company in Boston, it was one of the best cities, I think, to start a company. Because I think in Silicon Valley, when you're starting companies, there's a lot of distractions. There are incubators, there are uh, angel investors who will write you checks, and sometimes companies are not ready for that when they're still in the idea phase. So when we were in the idea phase, we were actually in school at Harvard, getting our law degrees. And so we were surrounded by some of the most forward-thinking, intelligent, academic research minds in the world. So my co-founder was at MIT in a a PhD program at a research lab. And so we were actually purely doing research. And that's how for two years our product was, you know, light years ahead of our, our competitors in the industry. And I think that that's hard to see in the Bay Area sometimes because of the commercial pressures that come with being venture-backed. But I do think that the Bay Area is world-class for scaling companies. 
I think the leaders in go-to-market and marketing and sales and customer success, product management, the go-to-market team in the environment that we have in the Bay Area is hard to compete with, including you know, New York, right? Uh, but I think New York is actually one of the main bases for customers. And so for me, I'm always on planes because I'm trying to get the best of all three regions, deep research out of universities in Boston, meeting with clients in New York, and then also running my office here in California. But I don't think one is better than the other. I think they're, they're just different. And I think for depending on what kind of company you are, if you're a consumer tech company, the Bay Area, I think is quite good for that. If you're building enterprise software applications, there's a lot of clients in New York. And so I think it's trying to balance. And I think in the foreseeable future, we, should, we would open an office in New York to increase our presence there because we have a lot of clients there. I think that couldn't have been better said. You know, uh, being uh, bi-coastal or between both coasts makes a lot of sense. But like you said, there's nothing like Silicon Valley for scaling and Perhaps there's nothing like New York City for landing new business. So maybe both worlds tie very well together. You know, as well, recently you announced that you have become a Forbes 30 under 30 member. I've heard about this before. It's one of my favorite publications to read. And I have some friends who've who've in different industries become Forbes 30 under 30 with hospitality and, and travel. But, you know, I actually don't know much about it. So what has it meant to you to be a Forbes 30 under 30? And how has that helped you connect with other founders or startups in the space? It's a big honor. I never thought I'll get it. And so one of the things that it's done for me is, the first thing I'll say, it wasn't just me that got it. My two co-founders also got it. So three people out of Eversor got 30 under 30 the same year. So our class photo has the three of us in our office, which I, that I'm actually very proud of because I think it's not just you know me as a founder building a company. My co-founders are here every step of the way. What it's done is it's given us some credibility and some recognition for the work that we're doing. I think it's, it's hard in the early stages, in the early innings of building a startup uh, to differentiate the people who actually want to build companies Versus the people who maybe read some self-help books and then are, you know, more exploring the idea of, of creating a company. And so for us, you know, from day one, we were never doing this as a hobby. You know, we always believed in the vision and our ability to execute. And then being named to the Forbes list uh, was a validation uh, for the efforts that we had so far. And then shortly thereafter, Microsoft and uh, Vertex and other VCs invested $15 million. And so now we're, there, there's a financial uh, recognition there as well. But uh, the 30 under 30 was a way for us to go out to our colleagues and our peers and say, hey, take a chance in Eversor. Join us. We're here working on something cool, something meaningful, and something impactful. Uh, why not do it together? And that's very noble. And also what's very meaningful and impactful is the future of work and enhancing jobs. And you know, one common theme that I feel for certain I've taken throughout our whole conversation is that what you're looking to do is enhancing jobs, not replacing jobs. And I go back to the brief interlude I shared earlier on the event I attended with Scarlett Fu and Daniel Remote from VIA at Bloomberg in New York. And it was, even though it's a different industry, I take so much parallels between your companies because, you know, Scarlett from Bloomberg Television asked Daniel, she said, you know, how are you any different than Lyft and Uber? Are you just, you know, doing contractors and gig economy and replacing jobs? And Daniel said a very surprising fact. He said, a couple of years ago, Via pivoted. We're no longer just 
a ride-hailing company, we're a dynamic transportation company. So when you have school buses in cities and other areas like Austin, Texas, that may have not had a bus network, they're powering that so that those who are doing manual transport and transport of the 1990s are now brought into 2020. And so I can't help but see a similar parallel for what your venture is doing with lawyers and law firms to bringing them into 2020. And so, you know, with those remarks, I wanted to debate a little bit about with you about both not just what you're doing, but do you think AI is going to be that arch nemesis that's going to more replace jobs or enhance jobs like, you know, what you guys are working on today? Yeah, the example that I give here is the difference between automation and augmentation. I think uh, you're always going to need a lawyer to review a contract. But the example that I'll give is I I currently, um, I just bought a Tesla and it's been a lot of fun. It's actually much faster than I expected uh, because (laughs) the battery just turns on when you press the gas pedal, which is not a gas pedal, it's a battery paddle. That's pretty quick in acceleration. But more importantly, it it can drive by itself, quote unquote, drive by itself with the autopilot feature. So I'm going down the freeway and I have the autopilot on and it's driving, it can brake, it could could, uh, switch lanes. But what what I don't do is I don't fall asleep because I'm not trying to die, right? So what what I do is I'm awake at the wheel, but what it does is it frees me up from the the stress, the constant monitoring of am I in my lane? It removes all the parts about driving that I didn't like, but I do like going places. I do like seeing things. And I think that that's what's happening a lot with verticalized AI uh, applications right now is it's removing some of the tedious parts of a person's job, but it's actually making that person more effective in doing what they were supposed to do in the first place. And for me, I went to law school because I actually wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to work with entrepreneurs. I wanted to be a startup lawyer and help people who are you know, visionaries actually build their companies. If I felt like I was actually able to do that, I would have never started Eversort. But what I realized instead was that that's not what my job was gonna be for the first five to 10 years. It was gonna be a lot of manual tasks, a lot of things that I think can be better done by computers. But the original motivation of being a lawyer still exists in me, and which is why I mentor uh, some startup founders now. And so a long way of saying, I don't think AI is going to replace people's jobs. It's actually going to replace the parts that people didn't want to do in the first place so they can spend more of their time doing the strategic work. So in essence, one of the takeaways that I see is I think, and it sounds like you think, that AI is going to move society faster to its potential, to where it could be right? You know, we don't know where that is. We can predict and create all the trend reports we want. But to get to what life could be like in 2100, why don't we get there now? You know, I know in the past few weeks, the Brookings Institute, famous for a lot of their trend reports, came out with an article where they said, whichever country has figured out and leads in AI by 2030, they will control the planet, by 2100. I saw those stronger marks and I said, oh my gosh, we're in it. It's a race. But I don't think the pressure has to be there about thinking the planet's on the line. I think it's about our society and our culture. It's about being human. It's about working together. And, you know, as you've mentioned, and I've seen all these parallels throughout our conversation today, it's that 
the law space just has not caught up, quite frankly, in the past few decades. And now is that time. And I can only imagine you spend five, 10 years doing all this manual work at a law firm, you know, like what we would see in The Good Wife with Alicia Florek and their associates. And it's not something that we have to stand by to see anymore. And, and I think that's probably one of the, the great reasons you were recognized with Forbes 30 Under 30. And your team is now changing the legal tech space in the United States and potentially even more than that. So thank you for all the great work. And I'm looking forward to following everything, Jerry, that you and your Eversort team are doing, especially, you know, once you guys open the New York office, I say, yeah. always come back to New York. <laughs> That's where lawyers are made. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm in New York almost once every three to four weeks. And so, you know, thanks so much, David, uh, for the podcast and look forward to sharing the word about AI and uh, legal tech with your audience. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for being on the Humane Podcast. And uh, let's keep everything as a human in the loop process. Thanks so much, Jerry. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. What do you think? Did the show measure up to your thoughts on artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education? Listeners, I want to hear from you so that I can offer you the most relevant, trend-setting, and educational content on the market. You can reach me directly by email at david at humanepodcast.com. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe, and leave a review on your preferred podcasting app, and tune in to more episodes of Humane. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.